0: ma a e a i got a present for you i oh, are a nice man i am
1: your the oh, man a mouse trap. It down. It down. this is hell Manufacturing descent since 1996, this is Hell, streaming live and podcast shortly after during the week at thisishell.com, the world broadcast premiere. Of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell, airs Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. on Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. You can also hear This Is Hell in an abbreviated one-hour version weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow. Idaho, twice every week on Lumpin Radio at lumpinradio.com, thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet Beware, which you can find at bewaretheradio.com. And this past weekend, we also broadcast for the very first time on CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. This is Hell airs on CKUW Sundays beginning at 8 p.m. Central Time. If you would like to hear This is Hell on your local radio station or you work for a local radio station and would like to have This is Hell as part of your regular programming, email me at at chuckatthisishell.com. We provide our show absolutely free, probably not a good idea, but we do, absolutely free to any radio station anywhere, and we'll customize our content to fit your schedule Thanks again to Scott P. and everyone at CKUW for making This Is Hell part of your regular schedule. We really, truly appreciate it. The United States does not have a national police force, which is often the mark of an authoritarian state, or what can be called a police state, or where the rights of uh, citizens and their freedoms are limited. Nations like Duterte's Philippines, or the Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, or the abuse of police in Haiti— They have centralized law law enforcement whose jurisdiction is essentially, well, everywhere. They are often forces that abuse their authority on a massive scale without any accountability, and they often do so with impunity. The founders of the United States were keenly aware of the tyranny a national police force could impose on its citizenry. They believed law enforcement should be local so they could best address the needs and concerns of the local community that they serve. In 1878, President Rutherford, Rutherford B. Hayes signed into law the Posse Comitatus Act, which limits the powers of the federal government in the use of federal military personnel to enforce domestic policies within the United States, reflecting the desire of the government to not have a militarized national police force. However, the growing power of the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol and its constantly increased funding while expanding the legal jurisdiction of the border zone has created was close to becoming the kind of national police force that founders feared. In fact, without our knowledge, without your knowledge, you may be within the border zone right now, despite being hundreds of miles from any national border. That includes places like, well, Chicago, Detroit, Houston, Los Angeles, Miami, New York, uh, New York City, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland, Oregon, and Washington, D.C. The entire state's of Connecticut, Delaware, Florida, Hawaii, Maine, Massachusetts, Michigan, New Hampshire, New Jersey, and Rhode Island are in the border zone. If you are in the United States, as our guest will explain to us, the odds are that you are at this moment in the border zone. In a few minutes, we will learn exactly what that Police power means and how it has been and is currently exercised, and what it might mean for our future in a more policed state. When we speak with Reese Jones, author of Nobody is Protected How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States, Reese is a professor and the chair of the Department of Geography and Environment at the University of Hawaii. Reese is a Guggenheim Fellow and is also the author of the award-winning books Violent Borders, Refugees, and the Right to Move, which came out in 2017, and 2012's Border Walls, Security and the War on Terror in the United States, India, and Israel. So this isn't just a problem here within the United States, but it's a problem that's global. Reese is the editor-in-chief of the peer-reviewed journal Geopolitics, which you can find at tandfonline.com and And, uh, Reese also uh, edits the Routledge Geopolitics book series with Klaus Dodds. You can follow Reese on Twitter at Reese Jones that's R-E-E-C-E Jones U-H Reese Jones U-H I'm your bitter blind to broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz Producing is Richard Norwood. Richard, it's been a minute. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing quite well, thank you, sir.
1: Considering That's, the circumstances you were, <laughs> you were talking to me before the show, yeah, which we won't yeah, discuss. Yeah,
2: exactly. No worries. Uh, uh, but it's been, a, it's been a really busy spring, and, uh, and so, yeah, there's a lot of different activities going on. Everyone wants to put on a show, which is exciting, so we've been doing a lot of work but uh, a little bit more exciting than that. I brought you a little present today. I saw that.
1: Uh, last <laughs> night you emailed me and said, who's your favorite baseball player from the mid-1970s? And I originally said Johnny Bench because I remember as a little kid, I really liked Johnny Bench. And then I remembered, no, the the player that had the biggest impact on my life was Detroit Tigers pitcher Mark the Bird Fidrich. <laughs> and I can't believe that you actually had a Mark Fidrich card. That isn't a, that's really amazing. And the, the story of... What happened to him is just so depressing. Uh, he. Was an incredible breakout rookie star, and the Detroit Tigers, which was that was the team organization that was not doing well, overworked him, blew out his arm, and his career lasted basically a year and a half. I so, see.
2: Yeah, and that's an All Star co- All Star card, and, I believe. Yes, and, and, and in that All
1: Star game, he got blown out. Yes. And uh, yeah,
2: I was uh, so that's actually a duplicate card that I had, so I'm happy to share that
1: with you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. So you work at the Museum of Contemporary Art, real quick, because I've had yes. a lot of people talking asking me about this have you been to the nick cave show
2: i haven't seen it uh, but i I mean well i've seen bits and pieces of it because it's it's really like all over the museum it's pretty intense and really awesome so yeah you should come check it out sometime
1: yeah i've had a lot of people saying that i definitely have to check that out all all i've been doing lately richard is counting the days until the surgery that will hopefully permanently cure me of the chronic digestive order you're gonna get another zipper oh (laughs) jeez Yet another one. (laughs) This disorder has been plaguing me for nearly 15 years, and I can't wait for it to go away. A disorder that landed me in the hospital and nearly killed me back in early March. This is my favorite line I've heard from a surgeon so far, Richard. Uh, You had a 40 to 60% chance of, you know, of what? You know, death or non-death? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, you know, you can just say 50-50. 40 to 60. Right in the middle there is 50-50. So anyway... Uh, So I missed over a a couple of months of the show uh, because I was hospitalized, uh, an emergency surgery back in early March. And basically, I have this new surgery coming up in a couple of weeks, and I really can't think about anything else when I'm not doing the writing and research necessary to do new episodes here on This Is Hell. But more importantly than any of that, I guess, Richard, what Mm. is this week's question from hell? Oh, surprised me there. Uh, Sorry about that, sir. I
2: thought we were doing the other thing. This week's question from hell is... What are you advertising on the highway billboard? Just across the state line. And
1: guess who just went across the state line <laughs> in a highway? I'm pretty sure producer Sebastian Vooper who wrote that question. Yes. And I think that's where he is right now, coming back from Columbus, Ohio. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter, at thisishellradio. You can email chuck at thisishell.com, of course, and send me your answer to the question from hell. But we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show, when we are announcing this week's winner, uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering and the face mask, or our coffee mug, uh, the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive, which features interviews from the 21st century it's that we've done in the last 22 years, uh, the winner hat and everybody's favorite, the trucker's cap. Again, uh, the question from hell is... What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the straight line, state line? Richard will be uh, sharing some of your answers to this week's question following our conversation with Reese Jones on the growing power of the U.S. Border Patrol. You can see all of our merchandise right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, where you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We are not a not-for-profit because we can't afford to be one. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Richard has this week's Hangover Cure.
2: This week's Hangover Cure is... The British cure known as barman's
1: medicine. <laughs> Isn't barman's medicine the liquor that gets you drunk? That costs <laughs> exactly. The, uh,
2: According to an article at mylondon.news by writer Tilly Alexander with the headline, I tried old-fashioned hangover cures from around the world, including pickle juice and pickled herrings, and only one beat a full English. What's a full English?
1: A huge breakfast. Uh-huh. the recipe. <laughs> it sounds for... like a wrestling move.
2: Though. <laughs> the recipe for making barman's medicine is as follows: take a pint glass and fill half with cola. Add a generous amount of ice. Fill the wa- fill with water. Pour in a packet of salt and mix. Ugh. You only need about ten ounces of cola for this, so less than a can will suffice. Alexander explains, I was soon sloshing the fizzy caramel liquid in, excited at the prospect of upgrading a top-tier hangover drink to cure. Except for when I downed the dregs, got a mouthful of undissolved salt, lodged at the bottom and relived the childhood childhood experience of non-consensually snorting seawater while being thrown under a wave. The taste wasn't nearly as salty as expected. The salt altered the flavor profile, but not in a bad way. It was oddly familiar, part cola, sweet, part simultaneously eating popcorn and drinking soda at the same... at the the movies. I felt noticeably refreshed and optimistic as I drank it. Alas, the longevity wasn't there. I felt warm, headachy, and puffy again not long after. That makes this week's hangover cure, barman's medicine, despite it being only a temporary fix.
1: You can email us your guest or topic suggestions, uh, your criticism, both constructive or destructive, and any thoughts you may want us to share uh, with the rest of our listening audience by emailing, again, chuck at com. And we'll likely read whatever you send to us on air. You can also direct message us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio and message us on Facebook at facebook.com slash radio. And if we have your suggested guest on the show, we will thank you personally on air during that interview of your suggested guest. Coming up, the growing power of the U.S. Border Patrol, far from the U.S. border. We will also tell you what's happening on, uh, what happened on last week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will also have this week in Rotten History some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Again, what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? And share with you who will be our guests on uh, later this week on This Is Hell live from the united states where far too often the law is the crime this is hell. the united states does not have the kind of national police force we often equate with Authoritarian, if not totalitarian nations, at least not yet. Here to tell us how the Customs and Border Patrol is more and more acting like a national police force. Reese Jones is author of Nobody is Protected, how the Border Patrol became the most dangerous police force in the United States. Welcome to This is How Reese.
0: Hey Chuck, thanks for having me.
1: Thank you for getting up so early. I cannot. Believe, I hope that you get up at this time on a regular basis in Hawaii because otherwise I'm feeling very, having a lot of Catholic guilt this morning. <laughs> it, it's
0: a, I am a morning person, but this is a little earlier than I might normally uh, be, be engaged in a conversation, but uh, I've had some coffee, so I'm ready to go.
1: Yeah, you sound like it. Uh, you write, not that you sound like you have coffee, have sound like you're ready to go. You write that in the summer of 2020, There were civil demonstrations across the United States after the killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man by Minneapolis police. Among the many videos of excessive police violence that circulated that summer, a series of videos stood out that documented mysterious late-night detentions by heavily armed agents in Portland, Oregon, in July of 2020. At first, there was confusion about the identities of the armed men as the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020 spread across the United States Heavily armed white civilians began appearing at the protests, many associated with the far-right three percenters, Oath Keepers, Proud Boys, Boogaloo Movement. There was concern that the video documented a kidnapping by one of those militia groups. However, others quickly realized the men in camo are were likely members of the U.S. Border Patrol. There were already reports that a Border Patrol Tactical Unit, or BORTAC, was in Portland to uh, protect the Marco Hatfield United States Courthouse and other federal buildings during the ongoing protests. Within a day, it was confirmed that the Border Patrol carried out the mysterious late night detentions. Uh, This is not in defense of the border. The closest border uh, to Portland, Oregon is the border with Canada, which is over 300 miles away. It's as, as close as the Canadian border is to here in Chicago, if you look at the border at Detroit and Windsor, what explains Border Patrol agents patrolling cities hundreds and hundreds of miles from the border?
0: Well, Chuck, the first thing that you need to know about the Border Patrol is they have a vast zone inside of the United States that they're allowed to operate. Um, And that zone is defined as 100 miles from borders and coastlines. So, Actually, Portland is in the 100-mile border zone. It's, it's about 90 miles from the coastline. Um, and Chicago, as well, is uh, in the border zone, according to the Border Patrol. Um, you might think you're a little far from any of the borders, but the, the Border Patrol counts Lake Michigan as an international waterway. So they mark 100 miles from the coast of Lake Michigan, so quite, quite well inside Um, the, the state of Illinois is in the border zone. Um, that border zone is vast. It includes, um, many of the largest cities in the U S, uh, San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, Boston, Miami, um, Houston. Um, and it also includes about two thirds of the U S population live in that 100 mile border zone. Um, and this is an area where, uh, the border patrol has special authority, um, to, uh, make stops with virtually no uh, reason. Um, They can stop more or less any vehicle in the border zone. The Supreme Court in the 1970s adjudicated a series of cases about the Border Patrol. um, And they came to the conclusion that the Border Patrol needs fairly wide authority to be able to operate in the border zone looking for people without documents. Um, and so they they have this list of facts that they can use to stop people in that border zone. Um, but it includes things like driving on a border road, right? So by definition, if they're in the border zone, they're driving on a border road. So um, it's, it's fairly easy for people to be pulled over by the Border Patrol. Um, also in that zone, the Border Patrol has... Um, the authority to, um, to use racial profiling. Um, they, the Supreme Court gave them the authority to use racial profiling in their work, um, and uh, that's been reconfirmed by the Department of Justice uh, in the Obama administration. Um, Eric Holder um, put out a memo about racial profiling and banned it for most federal police officers, but allowed immigration officers, including the Border Patrol, to use racial profiling in their work. Um, so there's a vast amount of authority that the Border Patrol has to operate in this 100-mile zone. Those stops in Portland, though, they weren't even part of that normal course of action of the Border Patrol. Instead, what Trump did during the summer of 2020 is he used a war on terror-era law that gives the Secretary of the Homeland, Department of Homeland Security the authority to repurpose federal um, agents and use them ostensibly to protect federal buildings. And so there were some conflicts in Portland. You may remember seeing some images of that. Um, But the authorization is quite broad. Um, If you read it, it says that they can conduct investigations on and off-site of these federal buildings um, and with no no distance mentioned of how far off-site they can go. Um, And it says they can Um, investigate any crime um, as part of uh, that work. And so some people have suggested that that authorization from the war on terror era means that in essence, the the Secretary of Homeland Security can um, put in place a national police force um, if they want to. Um, And and that summer, they, they seem to start doing that. And so those stops that we saw in Portland where they were they were using rental vans um, pulling up beside people opening the door of the rental van jumping out grabbing people off the street and throwing them into the van and driving off with them Um, uh, is really troubling Um, but nevertheless seems to have been within this authorization that they have to do that.
1: So, I had about 55 questions written for you here, and all of a sudden I have two new follow up questions to that. So, the war on terror, Obama announced that he declared that the war on terror was over, has ended overseas. Is the war, so, how much is the war on terror still taking place here within the domestic borders of the United States?
0: Well, they may have declared the end of the war on terror, but they did not uh, undo all of the new security apparatus that they constructed as part of the war on terror. Um, And so the Department of Homeland Security, of course, is the biggest, is the behemoth of that. And um, there were a lot of laws put in place in the years after um, September 11th, and as part of the creation of the Department of Homeland Security in 2003, um, that create this kind of vast authority for um, federal agents to do this policing inside the United States. Um, And many of those, like the one that they used in Portland in 2020, hadn't been invoked previously, um, but they're still there on the books. Um, But the the Border Patrol specifically, after September 11th, they repositioned themselves as being a front line against terrorism. If you look at their national ethos or you look at their documents online, terrorism focus is very much at the front of what they claim that they're doing. Um, Even though for the most part, their work is stopping people who wanna come to work in the US or more recently stopping people who simply wanna apply for asylum in the US um, in the border zone, um, they nevertheless present themselves as the front line against terrorist infiltrations into the U.S. Um, and that's resulted in a huge influx of money, of funding for the Border Patrol. Um, in as, as late as 1990, there were somewhere around 3,000 Border Patrol agents Um, In the year 2000, there were maybe about 7,000 Border Patrol agents, whereas today there are about 19,000 Border Patrol agents. And so all of that increase in the number of agents um, has also come along with a lot of high-tech surveillance materials, um, military gear that was repurposed from wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and has been brought back here to the United States as part of this um, massive security apparatus. So um, so the war on terror may be over officially, but it's still going on um, in the borderlands.
1: So is there any evidence that the Border Patrol has been successful in deterring acts of terror against the United States?
0: No. Um, the, the Border Patrol will regularly report that they have um, detained people whose names match names on the terrorist watch list um, that the government maintains. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that they have stopped someone who was an actual terrorist. Instead, it means there was someone whose name was the same, right? So like there was a, you know, say Reese Jones is on that list. Um, They stopped someone named Reese Jones, but it may not necessarily be the Reese Jones that was put on the list as the as the terrorist threat. So Um, As far as we know, um, since September 11th, the Border Patrol hasn't stopped an actual terrorist um, in their work, Um, but nevertheless, they have stopped people whose names match the terrorist watch list, but that's still only a
1: handful of people. You mentioned that in Portland, Oregon, that the BORTAC, the uh, Border Patrol Tactical Unit, had been using rental vans, and uh, the one of the problems that people were having, the activists were having on the streets of Portland, Oregon, was that they didn't. The uh, agents that were picking these people up off the streets didn't have any kind of identification on them. The same thing was happening when there were protests in Washington, D.C., outside of the U.S. Capitol. That the people who the people who were guarding the U.S. Capitol did not have any kind of identification on them. Why would should the BORTAC units not want to identify themselves? And does that explain why Americans may not know the growing power of the Border Patrol?
0: Yeah, I, I think I think there are two questions there. The first is that identification issue. Um, and I believe that Congress did pass a law in the aftermath of that requiring federal agents to have identification saying what agency they are from on their person when they're operating in these other capacities. so hopefully that very specific issue um, is addressed. Um, but with the border patrol, I think the one issue is that a lot of people don't realize how uh, vast the border zone is um, and quite the size of this border enforcement apparatus that's been constructed um, in the country um, because the border patrol, maybe we should just clarify who we're even talking about here. they're they're, Um, There are really four different um, primary uh, immigration-related police forces at the national level. Um, So there's the Border Patrol, which is what my book is mostly about. They wear green uniforms. um, They're the ones that can operate within 100 miles of borders and coastlines, and their job is to stop immediate um, cross-border actions. So someone who's just crossed the border, they're there to try to prevent that and, and detain people who've done that. Um, and there are 19,000 Border Patrol agents. Um, they're part of, so the big, the big umbrella is the Department of Homeland Security. And then under that is Customs and Border Protection. Um, so Border Patrol is one of three parts of Customs and Border Protection. There's also um, the Office of Field Operations. So if you've crossed at a, at a port of entry, at a border, or if you've flown into an airport um, internationally um, and you've had your passport checked, that is an Office of Field Operations officer. So they wear blue uniforms, and their job is to check documents and check customs requirements at actual crossing points. There are also about 20,000 Office of Field Operations officers as well. Um, And then there's the third unit, which is Air and Marine Operations, um, which was created after September 11th. Um, Air and Marine Operations officers wear brown uniforms, um, and they manage the airplanes and the boats Um, for immigration enforcement um, and also the drones um, that the border that Customs and Border Protection has Um, and interestingly their authorization has no distance limit Um, and so they can use their drones anywhere in the United States um, and they're also allowed to lend those drones out to local police forces. Um, so, for example, during the George Floyd protests, there was a customs and border protection drone flying over Minneapolis um, during the protests and monitoring what was happening there. Of course, has nothing to do with immigration or the border, um, but it's being repurposed for these other other things. Um, The last of the immigration police forces is is ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Um, That's a separate unit Um, outside of Customs and Border Protection, but it's in the Department of Homeland Security. Um, And ICE are the agents that uh, round people up inside the U.S. So if someone has overstayed a visa um, and they have a deportation order, ICE's job is to go locate that person and then remove them from the country. Um, So when we combine all those together, um, the immigration enforcement apparatus is by far the largest police force in, in the U.S.
1: So you also point out how you have ex- actually experienced the seemingly unchecked authority of the Border Patrol in 2011 when you were driving on a public road with a rancher named Bill Addington. The first two agents uh, began following us as soon as the dust kicked up behind my rental car after we turned onto the gravel of Route 192 headed toward the border. Knowing what was coming, Bill tried to be proactive. We pulled over and told the police that what we were doing. The second, third, and fourth Border Patrol trucks... Pulled us over during the 30 miles we spent driving down the public road to see the border wall and the wetlands beyond it. And you add that my drive along the border with Bill made me wonder how the Border Patrol had become the focus of such intense policing inside the United States. Was it really possible that the Border Patrol can legally stop the same vehicle five times in less than an hour? While driving along a public road in the United States, and you add that a few days later, I was in El Paso recounting my drive with Bill to a Mexican-American community organizer who smiled and laughed. You then quote the organizer saying, just think if you really fit the profile. They would have had three cars there, put you in the back, and then asked questions. Sometimes I feel like the, qu- the Constitution does not exist here at the border, is what the organizer told you. From your experience Does the Constitution exist at the border, especially the Fourth Amendment, which prohibits the United States government from conducting unreasonable searches and seizures that police cannot search a person or their property without a warrant or probable cause? Does the Fourth Amendment exist at the border? So the
0: Fourth Amendment exists at the border. The Constitution applies to the entire territory of the United States. Um, But what we've seen is the Supreme Court has decided to defer to Congress on issues around immigration. calling it part of the the national security apparatus. It's called the plenary power of Congress to decide those issues. Um, So consistently, the Supreme Court has opted not to intervene on these issues. Um, And so the result of that has been um, a number of these congressional authorizations for the Border Patrol um, has meant that there have been carve-outs of the Fourth Amendment specifically for the Border Patrol. So. Uh, although the Constitution, in theory, applies everywhere in the United States, um, with the actions of the Border Patrol, there are all of these special circumstances that allow them to do things that other police could never do. Um, and that story, from my experiences um, at the border, is one example of that. Um, so the, the case that applies to that is um, um, Brignone, Ponce, um, which was a 1975 Supreme Court decision, um, which was about whether the Border Patrol, the the case was actually about whether the Border Patrol could stop a vehicle simply because the person inside it looked Mexican. Um, That was what the Border Patrol had done um, to Felix uh, Brignone Ponce. um, And so the case was about whether that was justified. Um, The Supreme Court decided that no, the border patrol could not stop someone just because they looked Mexican um, but then the ruling goes on to say um what circumstances they could make a stop in the border zone and it lists 14 different um uh, what they call articulable facts of reasonable suspicion um which run the gamut of things that that you could use to justify it and the the ruling essentially says you need to have two facts um, in order to make a stop. So um, these are things like driving on a border road constitutes a fact. Um, Driving a station wagon is listed, driving an overloaded vehicle, driving too fast, driving too slow. Um, In reports since then, Border Patrol agents will often say the person averted their eyes, and so it looks suspicious. Um, In other cases, they'll say, the person kept looking at me, and that was suspicious. Um, So there's this wide range of things that allow the Border Patrol to manufacture um, these articulable facts of reasonable suspicion. Um, But most concerning is in in terms of race, although the the Supreme Court said the Border Patrol cannot just use race, To make a stop in the border zone they did include race as one of those factors that they can use so the border patrol can say you were driving on a border road and you looked mexican that's enough to make a stop Um, so um, in practice what this means is there are so many different possible factors that they could use to justify stopping a vehicle that they can stop any vehicle in the border zone
1: So you mentioned the Supreme Court decisions U.S. versus Brignoni-Ponce in uh, 1975 and U.S. versus Martinez-Fuerte in 1976, and you write that uh, these legalized racial profiling for the Border Patrol and should be seen in the same light as some of the most notorious racist decisions in the history of the United States, such as Dred Scott versus Sanford, Plessy v. Ferguson, and Korematsu versus the United States. Why do those racist, racist decisions, if you will, the ones with um, U.S. versus Bignoni's Ponce in '75, U.S. versus uh, Martinez-Fuerte in 1976, why do they not get the same scrutiny that decisions like Plessy, Dred Scott, and Korematsu have received, in your opinion?
0: I think for a lot of people, it, it comes back to what we've said a few times, that the border pat- border seems distant to them. It seems like something that doesn't directly affect their lives, right? It's something that, in theory, is supposed to only affect people who are not citizens of the United States. And so um, it's something that hasn't been at the forefront of people's concerns, I think. Um, part of that is because, historically, the Border Patrol was pretty small. Um, in the 1970s, when these key decisions were made, um, the border patrol was about 1500 agents, right? So um, patrolling the border with Mexico, but also the border with Canada, um, coastlines as well is is under their remit. And so they just didn't have that many agents, and it didn't affect that many people during that period of time. Um, But as we were discussing previously, they've significantly expanded their size in recent years which allows them to operate in a much larger scale in places that they never were before Um, and so the the concern is they have all of this authority they have this um, ability to stop virtually any vehicle in that 100 mile zone which as we talked about before includes two-thirds of the u.s population those other department of, of homeland security authorizations allow them to operate anywhere in the u.s um, and continue to use this kind of special authority to make stops. Um, and so it it's, gives them this authority to do things that that we've never had in the U.S. And if someone wanted to use it malevolently, they could, right? Um, and so that's the concern that I think that we need to be increasingly aware of. Um, can I talk a little bit about the second of those cases that you mentioned, um, Martinez-Fuerte? What that case considered was whether the border patrol could um, set up checkpoints on interior roads inside the United States. Um, So just so that we're clear, we're not talking about the crossing points like between um, Nogales, Arizona and Nogales, Mexico, where people present their documents to cross across the international border. Um, What this case was about was whether the border patrol could set up checkpoints deep inside the US, typically 25 to 100 miles Um, from the border itself um, in order to stop every single vehicle that crosses through that road. Um, And we're talking about back back roads, but we're also talking about interstate highways, right? There there are checkpoints on um, I-5 in California, for example. Um, And so uh, this case was about whether they were allowed to do that. Um, And the Supreme Court ends up deciding that, yes, they are allowed to do that, um, but under very narrow circumstances, that there has to be a justifiable immigration-related reason for it, um, and that the imposition on regular motorists has to be minimal, right? And so this is the second case that's that's quite substantial rolling back of Fourth Amendment protections, because in effect, this means that every single vehicle that passes through one of these checkpoints is briefly seized by the government um, in order to ask questions about the immigration status of the people inside, even though they have no suspicion um, that the vast majority of those cars have any reason to think that there's someone that doesn't have um, the proper documents inside. Um, And this case also allows them to use race to decide whether to do an additional inspection of a car, to essentially divert it to a secondary inspection. Um, And that case said they can use only race. So the car pulls up, um, the agencies that the people inside are not white, um, they can divert that car to secondary inspection in order to do an an additional inspection of that vehicle. Um, So again, when they approved this in 1976, Um, There were only 1,500 Border Patrol agents. They were running just a few checkpoints along the US-Mexico border in the interior of the United States. Um, Today though, there are 19,000 of these agents. And there was a report just uh, last week that the Government Accountability Office released about these interior checkpoints. Um, And the numbers are quite quite startling. Um, They were running, um, over the past five years, they have run uh, 113 different checkpoints. So 72 of those are on the southern border. So they're from California all the way to through Texas. Um, but 41 of them are on the northern border um, in New York, um, New Hampshire, and Maine, um, that they've been running uh, checkpoints as well up there. Um, and it's the report said that over the last five years, uh, five years, 2016 to 2020, is the data that they're using. So over that five-year period, um, 250 million vehicles pass through an interior border patrol checkpoint, right? So that is an enormous amount of people who are having their Fourth Amendment rights briefly, um, uh, you know, being seized briefly by the border patrol to ask them questions about their immigration status. And so um, it's really a a staggering use of this authority. For now, the Border Patrol has mostly been doing this near the southern border, but they've added now these northern border sites. But as I mentioned before, they can do this anywhere within 100 miles of borders and coastlines. So, for example, me here in Hawaii, there's nowhere in the state that's more than 100 miles from a a coastline. And so they can set up these checkpoints anywhere in the state of Hawaii. Um, They're not doing it yet, but they could. Right? Um, They could set up these checkpoints in Chicago. You're well within the 100 mile border zone on any of the interstate highways. They could set up a checkpoint and stop every single vehicle to inquire about their immigration status. Um, The danger of these, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit now, is that they've increasingly started to do other checks at these checkpoints. So they're not just asking about immigration anymore, um, but primarily they're using these checkpoints for drug enforcement.
1: Yeah, and let's mention that just for a second, because you, you actually, in your book, you mentioned uh, Snoop Dogg actually being pulled over on on the charges. And you, you write that in the 45 years since the number of Border Patrol agents has increased more than tenfold, even as the number of people apprehended by the Border Patrol has declined. And you quote, Mitra... Abedal Delahi, of the ACLU, who told, told you when the Supreme Court ruled on the Border Patrol's procedures, quote, there were no drugs, there were no sensors, there was no surveillance technology, there were no digital databases, it was a completely different world, we didn't have any border walls, all of the reasoning in Martinez-Fuerte is predicated on these facts, none of which exist today, nor have existed for 30 years five years. So has technology simply made that expansion of the Border Patrol and its powers obsolete?
0: I would say not obsolete. I would say extremely more powerful, right? So they're doing things it, when, when they approved these checkpoints, it was only to ask about immigration. Um, so the agents would ask your immigration status, and that was it. Um, but today, these checkpoints have become these permanent fixtures on many of these roads where they have um, license plate readers. So as soon as your car pulls into that, they read your license plate, feed that into a database um, to see if there are any warrants, for example, um, or you have past drug offenses. Um, And the Border Patrol in this recent um, accountability office report, it says that they store the data from those license plate readers for 15 years um, in their database. So um, so that's one expansion that was not technologically possible when these things were approved. Um, they, of course, have video cameras at all of these. Um, they've also started to use dogs. At many of these checkpoints. Um, so in that brief moment that the vehicle stops there, um, an agent will walk around the vehicle with a drug-sniffing dog. They claim the drugs, the dogs can also sniff humans, um, but they haven't produced any evidence they've actually ever found a human inside of a vehicle, but they do find a lot of drugs. Um, and let's let's set that aside and talk about that in just a second. Um, The third thing that they do is they, and this is related to the war on terror stuff, is they have radiation sensors at many of these checkpoints. Um, And these are designed supposedly to check for terrorists bringing dirty bombs um, into the United States. Of course, they've never found that, Um, um, but they have inconvenienced a lot of people. Um, For example, people who've recently had um, radiation therapy for cancer. Um, so uh, about a decade ago, the former governor of Arizona, Raul Castro, um, was passing through one of these checkpoints in Arizona between Nogales and Tucson. Um, and he had just had cancer treatment. I believe he was 90 years old at the time. Um, and they made him stand out in the sun for an hour while they were checking his vehicle for a dirty bomb. The, 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 the former governor of the state and a 90-year-old man. Um, so um, the, the reach of these checkpoints continues to expand into all these other things that were not part of that original authorization.
1: So a lot of people might think that the war on drugs may be coming to an end with, in many states, the legalization of marijuana, especially recreational marijuana around the United States. Uh, So how much is the war on drugs actually gearing up because of the expanded powers of the Border Patrol?
0: So that's probably the biggest impact of these checkpoints. So um, so I told you that 250 million people pass through these interior checkpoints in that five-year period. Um, but over that period of time, they only found uh, undocumented people in 17,000 vehicles, right? So, um, you know, that is an infinitesimally small number of undocumented people at these interior checkpoints so if you're only considering whether they're effective in that immigration purpose you would say they are not effective at all right and that really under that supreme court justification it's it's not an effective use of the border patrol's time for what it was originally justified for and um, the border patrol spends 10 percent of their um, staffing hours at these interior checkpoints um, but they only account for two percent of their um, th- their Immigration detentions. Um, So it's an enormous waste of resources um, and and huge imposition on those 250 million vehicles that pass through these checkpoints um, that in violating, I would suggest their Fourth Amendment rights every single time. Um, But the Border Patrol claims their success in drug areas, Um, and so they the. Immigration. The interior checkpoints are more successful places for um, making drug seizures for the border patrol. Um, but if you dig into the data and look at what they're seizing at these border patrols, it turns out that they're primarily finding drugs on American citizens, so 91% of the people who are um, cited for a drug possession violation at an interior checkpoint are American citizens. Um, and the majority of those people have small amounts of marijuana. Um, and so although, as you suggested, a lot of states are legalizing marijuana or at least the possession of recreational amounts of marijuana, um, it's still a federal violation of law. Um, but it creates this really weird situation at these checkpoints. So like in New Mexico, for example, where drug, where marijuana was legalized recently, but they have all these interior checkpoints, it's not a state violation. Um, and the federal prosecutors typically don't prosecute for small amounts of possession of marijuana. Um, but nevertheless, the Border Patrol still seizes that marijuana at these interior checkpoints. Um, and when they make a drug seizure, because of civil asset forfeiture laws, they can also seize your vehicle um, at that same time. So there, there's the situation where you could have a, you know, a, a less than an ounce of marijuana in your vehicle, and um, the dog finds it, um, and then they seize that marijuana. They charge you with nothing, but they take your vehicle because of those um, asset forfeiture laws. Um, so um, it it's a, a really troubling situation at these interior checkpoints.
1: We are speaking with Reese Jones, author of Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States. And you write how you discovered the outrageous behavior of Uh, You know uh, Early border patrol agents Who operated with impunity uh, Bringing a shoot first Ask questions later ethos To the enforcement of immigration laws Almost a century later Those excesses have been curtailed By your estimation Is there an even greater culture Of violence within the border patrol Than other branches of law enforcement For, For all the criticism of police departments Across the United States Their perceived racism And perpetuation of violence And instances of deadly violence especially especially when it comes to violence targeted uh, to unarmed citizens of color. Is the Border Patrol any better or worse when it comes to abuse?
0: Let's just think a little bit about where the Border Patrol operates. So we talk about violence from regular police. Regular police often operate in cities where there are video cameras on on traffic stops and uh, many regular police wear body cameras now. Um, There are also people around in cities who can film what regular police are doing. Um, And the people regular police are interacting with are predominantly U.S. citizens. Um, And in spite of all of those factors, we see a a high level of violence um, on the part of regular police officers. Now think about where border patrol agents operate. Um, for the most part, Border Patrol agents operate in remote desert areas um, where there are definitely no security cameras around. There are no other civilians around to see what they're doing. Um, and Border Patrol agents don't wear body cameras for the most part. Um, they, they recently were approved in 2021, but they haven't rolled it out to a large section of the agents. Um, and the people that they're interacting with are not citizens. Instead, they are poor immigrants who don't have any idea what their rights might be. Um, so what do you think? Do you think that there is probably more or less violence on the part of the Border Patrol compared to regular police? I'm pretty sure I know the answer to that
1: question. I would assume that there's going to be a lot more, but it's going to be unreported. Let's talk about that history for a second. You write, for the first 50 years of the Border Patrol's existence, the courts did not resolve this contradiction between the constitutional protections of the Fourth Amendment and the Border Patrol's regulations. So Grant uh, agents stopped and searched anyone they wanted. The earliest Border Patrol agents were drawn from the rough-and-tumble world of the Texas Rangers and frontier law enforcement. They brought an anything-goes ethos to the enforcement of the country's immigration laws in the remote and desolate stretches of the border. In the 2020 book, Cult of Glory, The Bold and Brutal History of the Texas Rangers, investigative journalist and Pulitzer Prize finalist and feature writing Doug Swanson described the Rangers' centuries of abuse, including burning villages, hunting runaway slaves, which has been brought up several times on our show, including with journalist Chris Tomlinson, and uh, murdering uh, Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. So to what extent is the Border Patrol a legacy of slavery and slave patrols
0: it absolutely is and and i talk about that in in the book um, so a couple points here the first is when was the border patrol created they were created in 1924 um in may 28th is the day that it, the border patrol was started um, and two days before that was when the u.s had passed its first comprehensive immigration law which is the immigration act of of 1924 um, what that law did, it was a law that was based in eugenics. Um, it, it, it was based in the race, pseudo, the race pseudoscience of this era, which posited that white people were superior to people from other parts of the world, um, and even superior the white Northern Europeans that predominantly made up the settler um, population of the United States were superior even to Southern and Eastern Europeans who were starting to show up in the aftermath of World War I. Um, And so the 1924 Immigration Act was designed to prevent these non-white immigrations to the United States and to refocus immigration towards Northern Europe, where um, the earlier settlers had come from. Um, the headline of the Los Angeles Times the day after that law was passed was a Nordic victory. Um, uh, The... New York Times headline um, said that America of the melting pot has come to an end um, and instead that the racial uh, characteristics of the country will be preserved going forward. Um, That law banned all Asian immigration to the United States. Um, It banned um, all African immigration to the United States um, and also had very small quotas for people from Southern and Eastern Europe. Um, so the result was essentially only Northern Europeans could could freely immigrate to the U.S. after that 1924 law. Um, and that's what the Border Patrol was established to enforce. It was created two days after that um, as the force to, in, to enforce these racial entry rules into the country. So the purpose of the Border Patrol was to protect the racial composition of the country. Um, so, um, so that's why they were created. Um, and who were the first agents? Well, you you suggested that. They were primarily drawn from the Texas Rangers. Um, and the Rangers have an awful history of... Um, racial policing of um, destroying ethnic cleansing of uh, Native American settlements in Texas, um, but also they served as slave catchers. Right, they're the we're often familiar with the Underground Railroad to the north to Canada, but there was also an Underground Railroad that went to Mexico as well. Mexico banned slavery decades before the United States did, um, and so the Texas Rangers' job frequently was to stop these freed slaves from exiting to Mexico. Um, And so that's the the history of the first Border Patrol agents. Um, I think, you know, when you're when you're working on a topic like this, you look for that kind of telling fact that illustrates this broader point that you're making Um, and in the case of the border patrol it's it's in the person of the very first border patrol agent Um, so when the border patrol was established in 1924 the first person they hired as a border patrol agent um, was a guy he he goes by jeff milton um, but his full name was jefferson davis milton Um, and jefferson davis of course is the president of the confederacy during the Cold War. So the first Border Patrol, I mean, during the Civil War, um, the first Border Patrol agent was named after the president of the Confederacy. Um, His father had been the um, governor of Florida, the Confederate governor of Florida, and he named his son after his close friend, the president of the Confederacy. Um, And I think that fact just illustrates what these early Border Patrol agents, who they were, and what they were doing and the way that they treated people in this border zone.
1: You also mentioned that uh, working as a border patrol agent means working shift after shift in an interior checkpoint on an American highway, asking every driver about their citizenship. You point out, how uh, the the daily work of the Border Patrol agents is boring. From 2011 to 2020, the average agent made fewer than two apprehensions a month or one apprehension for every 11 shifts on duty. That means two full weeks of work to find one person in the United States without documents. So uh, aside from politicians possibly scoring points with their constituencies and far-right news outlets uh, getting higher ratings by spreading fear of hordes of outsiders storming the border, who benefits from this overstaffing and overfunding of the border patrol is the outcome of politics and ratings is this all the, is this all the outcome of politics and ratings or is there something more to it than that that I'm missing
0: Yeah I think the border has become a new industrial complex right I mean we're all familiar with the military industrial complex um in the aftermath of September 11th the the idea of security infused the way that the country does border enforcement. And so um, a whole sector has emerged for selling these border security wares, whether it's the drones, the night vision goggles, the weapons, all of the other surveillance material that the Border Patrol uses in this zone. Um, So there's a lot of money in it, right? And there's become an entire industry. um, And we I'm sure your listeners know quite well how the military industrial complex works, right? You know, giving support to politicians and then those politicians support more money for the military, right? And it continues this loop. Um, The border has fallen into that same sort of a cycle where um, more and more money flows to it, which begets more and more agents. And then the need for more and more money to pay for those things that those agents are doing. Um, The border is vast, The US-Mexico border is um, 1,900 miles. The Canadian border is over 5,000 miles long. Um, The idea that those borders can be completely secured is a fever dream, right? It's it's something that's not possible. Um, And so no matter how many agents are put there at the border, there's always gonna be evidence that they're not stopping everything. Um, And so that continues this cycle of justifying even more and more agents to to be put there at the border. you mentioned the the amount of work though that actual agents do, right? That data for the entire decade of the the two thousand and teens, that's that's how many people they were stopping, right? Two people per month per agent, um, which is a staggeringly low number, right? Um, mm-hmm. The last two years, there have been more people detained at the border. And so if we included the data from that, I think it increases to like seven to 10 people per month that the average agent stops, right? But that's one person every three days, right? So it's still a lot of time spent at the border. Moreover, what we've seen over the last few years is that the majority of people who are crossing the border are not even trying to sneak in clandestinely. Instead, they are people fleeing um collapsing regimes in um in Central America looking for asylum in the U.S. so as soon as they set foot in the United States they find the border patrol agents and they apply for asylum they're not trying to evade them instead they want to just put in place that asylum application so um so there's even less effort to evade the the agents in these this current um number of people crossing the border um, so, yeah, it's in the, the argument that I'm making in the book is that as we have so many agents there with relatively little work to do is why we see this continuous creep to doing more and more things deeper and deeper inside the United States. Um, and if a president were to be put in place that has malevolent plans, um, the Border Patrol is right there. Um, as a force that can be redeployed for a wide range of other interior policing in the united states outside their mandate of immigration policing
1: just a few more questions for you reese you write that uh, james tom the border patrol's inspector general during the obama administration has said that one quarter of the killings by border patrol agents during his tenure were under suspicious circumstances but he was prevented from properly investigating how and why is the Border Patrol IG prevented from properly investigating suspicious killings by the Border Patrol?
0: Yeah, well, there's so much bound up in this question. Um, the the first thing, the, the Border Patrol has a history of covering up their um, wrongdoing. Um, so until just this last month, the Border Patrol had these things called critical incident teams. Um, so if there was a Uh, an example of violence by the Border Patrol, they would send in this critical incident team to do, I'm putting, doing air quotes, the investigation. Um, But those teams have been shown to cover up what has happened in these shootings. And so there's not evidence there for later investigators to find. Um, They finally decided to get rid of those this past month because of an uproar at Congress about those. Um, But the, the truth is, though, that the Supreme Court has like they've eroded the Fourth Amendment, they've also eroded the ability of people to sue border patrol agents for their actions as uh, on duty. Um, and so, your listeners may have heard of a recent case just just a week and a half ago. The Supreme Court decided in Egbert versus Boulay. Um, this was a case where an American citizen had had a border patrol agent come onto his driveway, onto his own property, um, and grab the man, throw him up against a car, and then throw him onto the ground. Um, It's a clear case of assault by the agent. Um, But the Supreme Court decided that because of the Border Patrol's authorization, if they do assaults in the line of duty, there is no recourse for citizens to sue them. Um, This follows on a previous case in 2020, where the, the Supreme Court also said that if the Border Patrol shoots someone on the other side of the border in Mexico and kills them, they've killed a number of teenagers in these cross-border shootings, Um, there's no recourse for the families of these people to sue the agents. Um, And so it's created a situation where the border patrol in that vast 100-mile zone can commit assaults and there's no recourse for citizens to to sue the agents, um, even if it's a clear and obvious violation of the individual's rights.
1: So how far would ending BORTAC, the tactical units of the Border Patrol, how far would that go to re- toward reforming the Border Patrol so it wouldn't have these reports of abuse that they do have?
0: Yeah, I would say the abuse is not just the, the tactical units. It's all, all of the Border Patrol agents. Um, so I think immediate things that could be done. Um, the first is that 100-mile zone. That was established in 1947 um, by just a administrative decision Um, of the customs office at the time. Um, So the Secretary of Homeland Security could initiate a revision of that and move the border zone back to within, say, five miles of the border. Um, And that would... dramatically change the way that the Border Patrol operates inside the United States. Um, Similarly, the Supreme Court said in Egbert versus Boulay that this issue is in the hands of Congress. And so if Congress wants citizens to be able to sue Border Patrol agents for assault, then they need to change the authorization of the Border Patrol. So Congress could, could very easily do that. Third thing, um, I would say the border patrols should be banned from doing these interior checkpoints. They are not effective in terms of immigration enforcement. They largely target American citizens for small drug offenses, um, and they're a clear violation to me of Fourth Amendment rights. And so similarly, the Secretary of Homeland Security could decide tomorrow that they're not going to do interior checkpoints anymore. So um, I think if you make all those changes, The result also would be a smaller border force um, and these concerning aspects of of their their actions would be curtailed
1: and as you point out these abuses happened during during the obama administration they happened during the trump administration administration they're happening during the Biden administration, it would seem like these kinds of abuses, it doesn't matter who is in power, that uh, the practices of the Border Patrol have bipartisan support. So if any administration can, uh, you just through administrative action, uh, end this kind of abuse, what explains, for instance, the Democrats in the Biden administration not doing so?
0: Yes, sadly, the Biden administration has been terrible on immigration issues from my perspective. I think there was a lot of hope that they were going to roll back many of the things that the Trump administration had done and they just haven't done that. Um, I think part of the issue for them is they see immigration as a low priority issue for their supporters, that um, you know, Democratic voters probably are more interested in issues around child tax credits, minimum wage, Healthcare, things like that, and immigration is is one of those issues, but it's not the primary one. Um, and I think what Democrat administrations tend to do is to put their focus in these other areas and just let that immigration issue be on the back burner. Um, but of course, for the Republicans, it's the primary issue right now, and so. Um, I think that that imbalance between the ways that these two parties handle it means that when Republicans are in power, they expand these authorities, and then when Democrats come into authority, they don't do anything about it. Um, and so we've seen this continuing ratcheting up of, um, of the, the extent um, and the size of these border agencies without the necessary checks on their authority.
1: One last question for you, Reese, and first I want to thank you for getting up so early and joining us today because this has been a fascinating conversation. Reese Jones is the author of Nobody is Protected, How the Border Patrol Became the Most Dangerous Police Force in the United States. You can follow Reese on Twitter at ReeseJonesUH, that's R-E-E-C-E Jones U-H, as in University of Hawaii. One last question for you, Reese, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. And you write that militarized borders to prevent the movement of civilians are a new phenomenon that only emerged in the United States as non-white immigrants began to arrive in the second half of the 19th century. The 1924 Immigration Act established national origin quotas that were meant to ensure that, in the words of the bill's author, Senator David Reed, quote, the racial composition of America at the present time thus is made permanent. So, do you are is the border racist? Are the borders in general racist? Not only the border between the United States and Mexico are borders the practice of racism, white supremacy, and white privilege.
0: Yes, um, you know I, I wrote an entire my previous book, which is called White Borders, lays out this argument, which is that um, the the entire reason that the United States has immigration laws is the arrival of non-white immigrants to the country. Each time there's a new group of non-white immigrants, a new set of laws are put in place to prevent their movement. And um, so the the idea of restricting immigration is and, and has been a proxy for racial exclusion to the United States. So I would argue if you want to pre- pursue an anti-racist position, then you should be in favor of in free movement, of allowing people to move freely over the surface of the earth. Um, it's, to me, a fundamental human right to be able to move freely and that um, border restrictions are, are a, a kind of egregious violation of that and something that um, we as a community should be trying to undo.
1: Reese, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. This has been, and it's a very enlightening uh, book and a uh, really revelatory conversation we've had today. Thank you so much for being on our show. It truly is a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. If what you just heard from Reese on the frightening growth of the power of Border Patrol far from any U.S. border, if that conversation was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something or to realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which this week streams live on Thursday at, no. this week is happening on Friday at 10 a.m. on Thursday morning. I'll be going through another horrible medical procedure. Anyway, so uh, this week's uh, Patreon podcast is going to be happening at Friday, 10 a.m. Chicago time, and his podcast shortly after, patreon.com slash thisishell. You can also show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. On last week's Patreon podcast, following our conversation with Open Democracy's economics editor, Laura Basu, on her article, Attention Deficit Disorder, the Anti-Capitalist Condition, I was convinced that I have ADD. After all, I seem to have many if not all of ADD symptoms including poor working memory and attention distractibility, poor executive function skills that help you get things done like plan, manage time and multitask, as well as a tendency to take impulsive action, losing personal items. And not being that detail-oriented. I also lack the ability to do the kind of work that David Graeber described here on This Is How, as well as in his book, B.S. Jobs, paid employment that is so completely pointless, unnecessary, or pernicious that even the employee cannot justify its existence, even though as part of the conditions of employment, the employee feels obliged to pretend that this is not the case. So on our June 16th Patreon podcast, now at patreon.com slash thisishell, I confessed how I exhibit those symptoms on a daily basis in my personal life as well as here on This Is Hell. Following that revelatory monologue, and yes, I've used the word revelatory twice in the last four minutes, we shared an interview from nearly 20 years ago when we spoke with Edward Hammond, who was at the time director of the now defunct Sunshine Project, which is too bad because that group was really amazing. But they had just uh, published the report, Pentagon Program Promotes Psychopharmacological Warfare. That report began by stating, based on extensive reviews, it uh, conducted on the medical literature and new developments in the pharmaceutical industry. The development and use of psychopharmacological weapons is achievable and desirable, which is creepy. These mind-altering weapons violate international agreements on chemical and biological warfare as well as human rights. Some of the techniques discussed in the report had already been used by the U.S. in the War on Terror, and that report... 20-year-old uh, conversation. That report was actually released on July 4th, 2002, and this will be the first in a series of what the establishment media would call unpatriotic, if not un-American, interviews that we will be sharing from here on. Uh, you know, we'll be sharing them on uh, Patreon as we get closer to this upcoming Fourth of July. Subscribe to This Is Hell on Patreon at Patreon.com/slash This Is to hear. All of that and to gain access to over 200 past Patreon podcasts, all featuring monologues by me and past interviews that are not available anywhere else online, including all of our interviews with Noam Chomsky and all of our interviews with Howard Zinn. You can only get access to those as of now by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash how. Richard, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? And tell us how any of our listeners are responding so far, if they are responding yet.
2: This week's question from hell is, what are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line?
1: I think at the state line here, it's just liquor, fireworks, and guns, right? I'm pretty <laughs> sure that's it.
2: We do have a few answers. So Sweet. Uh, La Catapón. Answers, for only a few buckets of your blood, sweat, and tears every day, you too can help in supporting <laughs> and feeding the CEOs of your corporation. Make
1: a difference today. <laughs> wow, you know, you'd probably get in an accident while reading that billboard, I'm guessing. Any more answers? Oh, yes.
2: Mick C. answers, guns, it's what's for dinner. <laughs>
1: That's a good one.
2: Fabio answers out of state abortions is what he's advertising mm.
1: for. Wow.
2: What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Nicholas E. answers, this is hell, because I'm on the highway to hell. <laughs> All right.
1: Is that just an ad for an ACDC record? I think so.
2: Adam A. answers, you are now leaving. Hashtag... Oh, wow. <laughs> leave your racist uh i can't say the word useful <laughs> idiot drunk uncle at home <laughs> thank you adam
1: <laughs> greg and g- great job of self-editing there Richard.
2: <laughs> greg g answers fireworks guns and massage parlors open until midnight now that
1: i think is at
2: the indiana boy yes. he says well, or is that just Indiana? <laughs> exactly What are you advertising on the highway billboard just across the state line? Jeffrey, Our Jeffrey D. answers, bring your guns, drugs, and underage sex slaves here. Wow. We allow everything but abortions. (laughs) Last one for today, Benjamin C., slow down, decadence can't be hurried. (laughs) (laughs)
1: It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. And, of course, you can leave your answers to this week's question at our Facebook page. You can tweet them at us. You can email them to us. But we must have your answer in by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner. In Rotten History on June twenty-first, nineteen nineteen, 1919, 103 years ago this week, The Canadian city of Winnipeg was paralyzed by a massive general strike, and with labor history like that, no wonder we've been picked up at CKUW FM 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. For weeks, the mood had been nonviolent, even jovial, as workers across the city, including veterans just returned from World War I, protested low wages and anti-immigrant discrimination by gathering outdoors to enjoy the summer sunshine. And here, speakers endorse the principles of collective bargaining. Again, protesting anti-immigrant d- discrimination, and I think I'm starting to uh, fall in love with the city of Winnipeg. Some 30,000 union and non-union workers were participating, even the city's police Even the city's police had voted in favor of the strike, while remaining on duty at the request of union leaders, who also approved the continuation of certain food deliveries. Who knew Winnipeg had such a radical past? But panicky business leaders, oh, those panicky business leaders always causing trouble, they feared revolution and had persuaded government officials to step in. Winnipeg's Mayor had fired most of the city's police because they were supporting the strikers and replaced them with untrained thugs. I suppose the trained thugs that we have here in the United States. And in came the fabled Northwest Mounted Police, who on the 21st of June, 103 years ago this Tuesday, rode into a crowd of striking war veterans and began shooting. The red-coated Mounties fired more than 100 shots, killing two strikers, wounded at least 30, and arresting about 80 more. The incident became known in Canada as Bloody Saturday and essentially broke the strike. Well, I should have expected that because this is rotten history after all. Several strike leaders and journalists were arrested and jailed, but most would eventually be acquitted. One of the jailed and acquitted was the journalist J.S. Woodsworth, who was later elected to the Canadian House of Commons And in 1932, one of the strike leaders, the labor activist John Queen, became mayor of Winnipeg. So thank you, Winnipeg, for redeeming yourself. I believe you have the next entry in this week's Rotten History. Richard?
2: Yes, sir. June 22, 1918. 104 years ago this week, a railroad engineer named Alonzo Sargent. Railroad engineer means... We're gonna have a train wreck. (laughs) Exactly. Railroad engineer Alonzo Sargent, who had just eaten a big meal after staying awake for 24 hours straight. This is not sounding good. And that was work-related. Being awake, he had to stay awake for driving trains for 24 hours. He wasn't just out partying. (laughs) He fell asleep at the controls of a Michigan Central locomotive pulling 20 empty Pullman coaches. As his train was passing Hammond, Indiana, he failed to heed a brakeman's warning signal and his locomotive plowed into the rear end of another train carrying workers and performers of the Hagenbeck-Wallace Circus, which was one of the biggest circuses in the U.S. at that time. The collision immediately set off fires in the circus train, whose wooden coaches were illuminated by oil lamps. (laughs) Not that good of an idea. Luckily, no circus animals were harmed in the accident since they were being transported on a separate train. Because you want to
1: keep them safe. Yes,
2: but 86 people were killed, and more than 100 were injured, including acrobats, fire eaters, lion tamers, and musicians. Renato doesn't say how many clowns were injured.
1: (laughs) No, I don't even know if there were clowns in that circus. Very odd.
2: Many were so horribly burned that their bodies could not be identified afterward. This, uh, I did some other additional research. This fire, like the majority of people who died and were injured, that happened within minutes uh, after the crash because of the wooden cart cars and the oil 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 (laughs) lamps. Jesus. 53. 53 of the victims are now buried together at Woodlawn Cemetery in the Chicago suburb of Fort Forest Park and a section set aside called Showman's Rest. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> wow. A, it, was, it was established before the accident. This, there was a special section that is called Showman's Rest <laughs> that was set aside for uh, entertainers and and uh, circus folks. Folks. Yeah. Wow. Some headstones only give the dead people's nicknames names or identify them as horse driver or unknown
1: female. (laughs) Wow, and I don't know if there's anything quite as horribly ironic as Fire eaters being burned to death. I mean, they're kind of slacking on the job there, right? Finally, in Rotten History on June 23rd, 1611, thank you for the additional research there, Richard. Uh, 411 years ago this week, the English explorer Henry Hudson, in command of a ship called the Discovery, found his crew in mutiny. He had been sent to North America by merchants of the British. East India Company, racist bastards, to search for a long-desired northwest passage by which European ships could hopefully pass through the North American continent to reach the faraway ports of Asia. Two years earlier, Hudson and a different crew had sailed into the estuary around what is now New York City and had gone up the river that today bears Hudson's name, the Hudson River. After making it as far upstream as the current location of Albany, New York, Hudson had correctly determined that the river was a dead end that would not take him and his crew through the continent. Now, on his this new voyage, he had been investigating the possibility of an entirely different sea route far to the north, and I'm starting to realize why Hudson's crew mut- mutinied. Sailing past Greenland the previous autumn, Hudson and his then crew had entered what at first seemed like open ocean, but was actually the enormous body of water now known as Hudson Bay. And who knew Hudson River and Hudson Bay were named after failures by Hudson that led to mutinies. After several weeks of exploring and mapping its coast, the men had been forced by the frozen water to spend a miserable winter camped ashore. And now with the spring thaw, most of them were all fired up to head back home to Europe. But Hudson had a different idea because he was apparently a complete dick. He wanted to keep pressing West deeper into uncharted waters, still looking for that elusive route to the Pacific. So Hudson's men decided they were done with him. They forced him into a little lifeboat along with his son and a few other crewmen who'd gotten sick and were seen as a burden because apparently the mutineers were also dicks. The mutineers threw them a little food and some clothing along with a gun and some ammo and shoved them off. For a while, Hudson and his unfortunate fellow castaways rowed furiously trying to keep up with the big ship, but the mutineers finally opened more sails and the big ship pulled away, disappearing over the eastern horizon. Hudson and the others in the small boat, a small open boat, were never ever seen again. And for whatever reason, we still haven't renamed the Hudson River and Hudson Bay for something other than a complete failure of an explorer. That's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Richard, who are our upcoming guests on this week's This Is Hell?
2: We have Susan Paulson. Is that tomorrow? Yes. Returns to This Is Hell. This time, Susan will be discussing her contribution to the new book, The Case for Degrowth. Susan's essay is entitled, The Potential of Strategic Entanglements. Susan is a professor at the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Florida.
1: And following Susan, who will our
2: final guest be this week? We have writer and freelance journalist, Kamala. Saigarjan? Saigarjan?
1: We really got to work on this before she's on the
2: show. Who wrote the Wired article, India isn't ready for a deadly combination of heat and humidity? We, is anybody? No, nobody. We're, we're, we're th- going to be experiencing it soon.
1: Yes. Oh, my God. It's going to get horrible this week. We will also have another installment of Sub Soapbox, producer Sebastian Vuppers' discussion of history. And, of course, a moment of truth from Jeff And Please join us Wednesday, June 29th, June 29th, for our very last unofficial This Is Hell office hours, our meet and greet that is really a drink and think. Downstairs at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue, here in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood, Wednesday, June 29th, we will have This Is Hell office hours, our final unofficial version until we return to official weekly office hours on Wednesday, August 24th which will be our first official office hours since the pandemic began way back in February of 2020. What currently makes office hours unofficial is their irregularity. What will make them official is the fact that I will actually be attending and hosting office hours on a regular weekly basis every Wednesday, again, beginning on Wednesday, August 24th, and everyone who attends will get a surprise gift just for hanging out. Office hours aside, our This Is Art art show opens J- Saturday, July 23rd during the 50-year celebration of Kerry's Lounge being in business. And the closing party for This Is Art happens during our 26th anniversary party, our listener appreciation party, which is taking place on September 17th, the final Saturday of summer during summer's final weekend. If you are an artist or know an artist or would like to suggest an artist whose work you appreciate, email me at chuck@thisishell.com and send a sample of their, of the art or tell us how to find that art online. This is a great opportunity for working artists as we do not take Take any commission whatsoever from any sale of your art. If you as an artist are interested or have a suggestion of an artist whose work you admire, email me, chuck at thisishell.com. Send your art or a link to the art of your suggested artist as soon as possible as the opening of This Is Art is again happening on Saturday, July 23rd at Carrie's Lounge, Carrie's Lounge's 50th year in business celebration. As this is uh, the party that we are going to be having on September 17th is a listener appreciation party, we also want your suggestions for me Musicians or musical acts to perform on the final week of summer. So you can also send us your musical suggestions to chuck at this is hell.com and I'm told that we pay better than you would think and probably more than we should. Finally, if you have something you would like to donate as a prize for our raffle taking place during our anniversary party, again on Saturday, September 17th, email me at chuck at this is hell.com or just send whatever you want in the mail. Uh, to This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. That's This Is Hell, 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. See? Listen to all those dates. Listen to how confusing that is. We told you so. This is hell.
2: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor.